Welcome to this MTech Access podcast. At MTech Access, we offer a complete global market access service from strategy through to implementation. In the UK, all our work is underpinned by authentic NHS insights. Our in-house experts work closely with a national network of associates who occupy strategic, operational and clinical roles within the NHS. Leaders in their field, their knowledge and experience helps MTech Access to be as close to the front line of care delivery as possible. Please subscribe to the podcast or follow our LinkedIn company page for more information. Hello, good afternoon. I'm Tom Clark and welcome to the latest MTech Access Words of Wisdom webinar. This month we're marking a year of webinars, so I just wanted to start by thanking all of you that have been tuning in um, for your dedication in following us and, and Obviously, we're giving you some value in helping you understand what's going on in the NHS. And, and also thank you to the many new followers that we get every month. Um, I've been lucky to give, be given this platform by MTech Access and, and every month the insights that we're gathering and the, the broader conversations we're having with NHS colleagues have, have had a real impact in the last year or so, going into all the other work that we do for our clients, uh, be that digital tools, value communications, or, or health economic work. So, uh, yeah, just thanks again to everyone for tuning in. Today, I'm delighted to be joined by uh, Dr. Stephen Michael OBE, who's currently chair of the East Cheshire Partnership, uh, a role we'll learn more about very soon. Stephen began his career as a registered, registered nurse in psychiatric intensive care in 1985 before rising through various management and leadership roles to be CEO of Southwest Yorkshire Partnership Trust. And he's since continued to chair a number of NHS boards, including the NHS Confederation's Mental Health Network, Spectrum Community Health, and East Cheshire Partnership. So Stephen, welcome. Thank you for joining me. Hi. Um, could you just briefly introduce yourself uh, in, in terms of what you're currently doing and describe a bit about the, the area you're working in and the role? Yeah, well, if I start with Cheshire's partnership, um, I've been there for two years now as independent chair. So basically, it's overseeing the development of place uh, within Cheshire East, which is a population around about 380,000, uh, two acute providers, one mental health provider, eight care communities, eight primary care networks. Um, and I guess... In, in essence, and obviously the local authority in terms of, of Cheshire East Council. Um, in, in essence, the work is about really facilitating and supporting a dialogue that helps us understand what the challenge is for place moving forward and trying to establish a sustainable platform for services that is both affordable, uh, relevant to the needs of the population and provides better experience of care. <laughs> So that's, so that's no, kind of where we're at. <laughs> yeah, no shortage of work and, and, and as qualified as anyone could be to, to talk about yeah. place, which is, is the subject of our conversation. But before we move into to sort of the substance of that, the big news yesterday at Simon Stevens is, is setting mm -hmm. up. Um, just wonder if, if you have any comments on, on Simon Stevens. How have you seen him as a leader of the NHS? Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, any, any change at the top, in the kind of climate that we're working in is is obviously unsettling for people and i think that that simon's provided you know a consistency and continuity of leadership particularly in terms of speaking truth to power which is not the easiest thing in the world to do um and i think that people will be nervous to to, to see who will his replacement be and how they'll interface with the political dynamic particularly in westminster yeah, fantastic. And do, do, you, do you think then that, that there's any chance that there might be a, a diversion from the, the route to integration? Um, I, I guess I guess in simple terms, it, the kind of worry is the tension that we have between command and control from the centre is evidenced by, you know, the recent white paper discussions and might, you know, whether Matt Hancock has the power to intervene if he's not happy with the integration that's occurring set against that kind of development of, a, of a, a, a kind of model of subsidiarity and devolution down in the local place, particularly with the involvement of councils. And I think it's trying to understand how that tension's managed. Yeah, okay, thank you. And I, since we first spoke about about you doing this session, there's already been a couple of additional caveats through through publications in recent weeks. And I suppose yesterday's news is, is probably another caveat to, to a lot of what yeah, you otherwise might have said. So, yeah. 
Yeah. Um, we'll, we'll continue as if uh, everything's going to carry on as as we all planned. Yeah. Um, so with that in mind, today's subject is, is about this notion of place, which is something that, that's come through in uh, in the recent NHS papers and the, and the white paper. Um, as a, a unit of the future NHS, I suppose, that sits between integrated care systems and, and PCNs. Lots of different interpretations and different views on what it might be and what it might do. So from your perspective, what is a place? Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's something which is debated continually um, at local level. But for me, it is a given population, usually where health and social care meet. So, so in in the experience that I have, and the part of the world where I'm working in, is places usually defined by local authority boundaries, and the interface with health provision within those boundaries. Um, so, you know that that means that the beginning of any conversation is to do with the population, basically, that is served by that area. Um, so, I think it's a big shift, really, because it's a shift from a basically a quasi-market-driven model with organisations holding sway to one where people are having to learn to collaborate on a different platform. Um, so, place, just to give you an example to which you, you, to answer your question, really, is in, in Cheshire and Merseyside, which is the area where I'm working, there are nine places, none of which are the same, um, but the role of the ICS is to try and provide a consistent approach within each place um, which involves, as I say, the relationship between health and particularly social care and through the broader determinants around health with the local council. Yeah, fantastic. And, and in terms of those, you've got nine places in, in, your, uh, in your system. Who defines those places? Um, I mean, I think they've existed as a, as, a, as a defined place for a while now from a, a political point of view. And as I say, they, they tend to reflect local council boundaries. Uh, and I know that's not consistent nationally. So sometimes those places are, are larger. Sometimes they might be a smaller area. Um, but I think it's almost determined through custom and practice and what the prevailing political dynamics being at local level within a patch. Yeah, okay. So, so how does that uh, how does that relate to provider collaboratives, communities, neighbourhoods, the other terms that we've heard that I think are often uh, with, with, diffi with difficulty, okay. <laughs> <laughs> I think is the answer. I think if I start with provider collaboratives, I think there's something around, it's very rare now to find a provider in many areas that, that has a coterminous structure with the place or places that it serves. You find that, you know, in, in particularly if you use mental health organisations, um, they're often serving populations across a number of places. And if you look at acute organisations, their footprint tends to move outside of boundaries. That's not only just in specialisms, but sometimes in more general services. So if you use an area where I, I'm working in at the moment in the north, the main prov acute provider, the flows of activity move out into the Greater Manchester platform. And yet there is an expectation that the acute offer is still is still lined in line with place and population need. So there's there's a tension there. I, I think I think in terms of particularly acute provision, I think mental health provision actually does that quite well. I think mental health provision sees that that flow down into neighborhoods because their teams have often been constructed and have worked on that type of community model for many years now, and are integrated with, with social care. For acute providers, I think they're beginning to really see the needs to work into place and to look at, at how they provide services, less by specialism, but more by groupings of individuals and their needs, which is a different way of looking at it. So you might say, for example, vulnerable elderly populations, rather than everybody's punched into either cardio or respiratory services, et cetera. And I think what that's doing is helping people understand how they might design their system beyond one place, but still remain quite relevant to place need. Yeah, okay. And I mean, that's that's a fascinating idea that, you know, some places will have their acute provider within them, others will have mm -hmm. it, you know, it might sit in the place next door. Obviously, you're brokering conversations at the moment in your role about how everyone's interacting. Um, yeah. 
where there are you know existing ways of working i suppose in place are they likely to be disrupted by the move to to place sorry i'm using place in too many different different ways yeah <laughs> are they likely to be disrupted um to begin with yes my experience was for example two years ago coming into a patch definitely yes people were finding the concept of moving from organization to system extremely difficult but with the kind of right facilitation and the right conversations you can see people's thinking moving far more to place-based discussions so i, I again give give concrete examples is is the one of the acute providers in the patch is facing a major challenge around their estate and basically they could be spending money which would be the equivalent over the next probably five years of rebuilding a hospital so what the strategy would be, and this is determined through discussions in place, is actually probably do need a new hospital, so there needs to be capital source to do that. Um, but that would be rebuilt on a carbon neutral footprint as part of the social regeneration of a particular area in the patch where there are a number of health inequalities. So you'd be providing better building stock, you would link that to housing development, you would link that potentially to retail and commercial development and small industrial development. You would then look at what elements of that exist within the current acute footprint, particularly in terms of diagnostics, and moving that into the integrated care partnership and primary care pathway with stronger links to PCNs. So I, why I'm using that as the example is that was not the strategy that was envisaged for acute um, two years ago, and it's emerged through partnership and place-based discussion. So what, what's driven that change then? Is, is it the, the recognition of how things need to emerge as, as reprioritised or has it been more of a, a top-down push? I don't think it's a top-down push. I think it's almost a kind of, it's, it's a kind of paradigm or mindset um, realisation that there is a different challenge here. We can't keep thinking in the way we did. And some of that's driven, you know, practically by, by the financial position. So that if you're looking at, a, at an underlying recurrent position, which is miles away from what you're spending, you know, in the case of this, probably around about 50 million plus, then you have to start thinking about solutions that actually involve different models of service and offer. Mm. And, uh, and how, oh, carry on, no. No, go on, no, go on. I, I was just gonna ask, in, in terms of those different services that are operating at, at different levels, um, mm -hmm. either system place or, or PCN. Um, how, how do you define what's done where and how? I, I think in some ways, um, there, are two, there are two ways, because I think there's, a, there's an emergent model which looks at, at population data in a very different way about people, where, where people access services and for what reason. Um, and what their experience is, it's almost back to the triple M model. So that you see a prevalence in the population of a certain condition in a certain area. And the response at the moment in terms of the experience of care, if you want to call it that, is you would go to an outpatient appointment at the hospital. What we're finding increasingly is, is that through the integrated working of the, of the ICP, which involves both care communities and PCNs at local level, we're beginning to see how that activity model shifts and COVID has definitely been an accelerator for that. So it's acted as a catalyst. So, you know, the, the typical example of, you know, outpatient models that have existed for 20 to 30 years that everybody are out of date have now changed because of COVID and have now moved much more definitely up or downstream into primary care, which is carried out more virtually. So it's kind of that there are they feel like there are a number of underscenes that are leading to those changes. Yeah, okay. So there's lots of ideas, I guess, coming into the place <laughs> the, the, the place area. Um mm -hmm. lots of different organizations involved, lots of different stakeholders. How is that governed? So at that place level, what's going on to to, to manage all of this? I think there's an there's enormous um, there's enormous variation from place to place in, in my experience and it's it's been strange to to have come into a place uh, where there was an identified requirement following a wider review within the Cheshire area <coughs> for a partnership board to be established with an independent chair 
And the reason for that, I think at the time, was a perception that there wasn't as much collaboration as there needed to be, and therefore they needed a vehicle to bring people together. That, in a sense, preempted place. It was before these discussions were really taking hold. But what we found in the patch is by having a designated partnership that begins to bring people to work together in a different way, it's kind of accelerated development within the place that I'm working in compared to an area that was seen to be more advanced probably two years ago where they haven't got a partnership vehicle. And those partnership vehicles tend to work up into the health and well-being boards at local level, which you're looking at, I would argue, the broader determinants around health. So back to housing, social regeneration, economic regeneration, et cetera, et cetera. So it, yeah, so go on. No, well, it's just the idea of, I think that's probably a piece of work that needs the support of the ICS. That, you know, I know that currently we're undergoing a, a readiness review across the nine. So it's trying to draw from that what, what kind of, it's not organizational development, it's system development. What kind of support do systems need, places need, to move from where they are now to where they will be in the future? Because there won't be a statutory organization at place level, that's my understanding, is that? Is well, that that's right, yes. So it's kind of, it's held together by the goodwill of the partners, really. Mm. Yeah. Now that Which might is... seem a bit of a, a leap of faith, but paradoxically, it might be better than what we've got now. Yeah, so with with obviously your role is is sort of coalescing that good faith, as it were, getting those mm -hmm. people in the room and staying in the room. Yeah, is that something you think is going to be needed universally, or, or will some areas be able to do that bit themselves? I think some places will be able to do that themselves, um, but it, it begs an interesting question: that where where is the kind of um, where, where is the, the broader governance in place? I mean, you might argue that the Health and Wellbeing Board provi provides a sense of governance, which I think it does. Um, but if we were to move towards a, a more of a sense of a statutory vehicle, um, where are you getting the input from the likes of the current non-executive directors and chairs that operate within current organisations? Uh, my question would be, is there not a role for people who give a more independent view, whose experience is beyond health and care and it just feels that could be lost in translation here somewhere yeah because i suppose as as you're going down the tree as it were you've got larger and larger groups of stakeholders all of whom yeah. are important to the future development but yeah you can only capture so much in in one go that's right that's right and, and I, I suppose with a nod to that and you've you've already alluded to this as well that relationship between ics and place the ics is going to be the statutory vehicle and yeah. have most of the responsibilities and, and accountability. What's that relationship between ICS and place likely to look like? Um, th there is a feeling of earned autonomy through it, so that the ICS has to undertake some kind of assessment or judgment as to how far decision making can be devolved into place and on what grounds. Mm. Um, so if you, if you take, for example, uh, two things really. One is um, devolved commissioning, the current commissioning functions that sit within CCGs. To what degree can the ICS assure itself that it's safe to devolve some of those functions into place? And the second area is in relation to the provider collaboratives. If we were looking at the commissioning of acute services, for example, how, how assured can they be that some of the decisions around the future acute provision can be made within place or they need to be taken further up the chain. Mm. And that, that piece around the CCG function, so a simplistic way to look at places would be that they're, they're broadly a mapping of a CCG because there'll be a subset of an ICS. How fair a representation is that or are they going to be doing, are, are they going to be quite different beasts? I, th I think they'll be different. I mean, I'm, I'm just speaking of, of personal um, experience at the moment, but if I look at Cheshire, Cheshire CCG moved from four into one <clears throat> on a commissioning footprint that looked to commission services on behalf of the whole of Cheshire. When the ICS came into existence in its current form, they were saying that's actually not what we need. <laughs> We, needed, we need commissioning functions to be actually restructured on a place-based footprint. So the idea that you might scale up 
to commission, they're saying, well, actually, you might have done that job well to move to that position, but actually what we really need is a stronger emphasis on place-based commissioning. So back to that idea, we need to understand the populations and we need those relationships with the councils particularly to be really tight at place level. I'm, <laughs> I'm imagining there might be a little bit of a tug of war going on as as people are deciding is this ICS is this place do you think do you think that's likely to emerge that there's going to be a bit of wrangling over who should be doing what at what level <laughs> somewhat <laughs> somewhat I think just using using the example of the acute um, uh, provider the idea that they might find a solution which is um, reflective of a relationship with the council and the broader determinants of health so where I say about you know, social and economic regeneration within a patch. Essentially, that can only really be achieved through place-based discussions with the council. If that was pulled up into an ICS, the ICS might be taking a different a different view because they're looking at different dimensions of what the healthcare system needs on a broader footprint. And that tension's already played out. But I, I, I mean, I have to say at local level, the discussions you've had with the ICS is that they see the opportunity of, of, of bringing that dialogue between the council and an acute provider linking to PCNs and care communities has just been a golden opportunity and probably a real demonstration of where you can bring real impact through place-based working. Yeah, and that, that that's a really good point. And, and, and you've brought in the, the sort of PCN. So in terms of the building blocks of places, so a place mm -hmm. where we had to set yeah. below that, yeah. Um, yeah. you know, we talk, touched on communities, yeah. PCNs. How do you see that lower level, the PCN level communities, how do you see that developing? Well, I think it's certainly that, that within the PCNs that are working in our patches is that they've seen themselves as part of the care community. So they're almost called terminus. You know, it, there's, there's different contractual arrangements where they don't exactly match. But the idea of working on a similar theme within within each of the patches is, is is beginning to it's beginning to get real traction so that what you'd see within a, a PCN for example is four priorities essentially or five priorities set because one emerged a bit later so cardiovascular respiratory uh, mental health and social prescribing children's homes and more latterly dermatology have been viewed across our PCN network as key areas to work on and what that's starting to do is then, then to devolve that down into neighbourhoods and understanding the patterns of, of life and activity within those local neighbourhoods and communities and restructuring the service offer accordingly. Um, and that, that in turn, the, the care communities are looking at a much broader determinants. So the idea that the PCN is operating as a reflection of what that care community does more broadly, and again back to the, the, the you know the housing dimensions, crime, safer living, you know, re, you know, regeneration and all that, and all of those issues, um, and that in turn then getting up into secondary care can help match the offer. So the offer going back to the acute services is we don't need to be doing this here because we know we're building infrastructure at local level within PCNs and care communities, um, and it's it. It's getting a better response from the council, I have to say, because the council started to think, you know, the, the health and wellbeing boards weren't sure what they were meant to be doing to begin with, really, really were they kind of set up and yeah. they tried to determine priorities for local populations. But when you have a kind of more granular system to work with, you begin to understand how you can change population trends and particularly address inequalities. So it's kind of, it's starting to work through differently. So, Primary care, I was going to say PCNs, but primary care historically in terms of the push of more work from hospital to primary care, primary yeah. care has always sort of uh, felt a bit put upon almost that there's more work to do and it's not being yeah. reversed. Do you, do you sense that actually now there's almost an emboldening of primary care, you can do more, you, you, you've got more responsibility and, and there will be money to I think, follow? I think there is. I, I think there is, but I think, I think there's a further tension in the we often don't define the interface between primary care and community services. So the community services that are either provided typically through either, you know, on a, on a vertically integrated model through the acute provider 
or on a different model through a mental health provider. We've got a mix of both in, in the parts I'm working in. But I think I think that that is being worked through now, so that the relationship between those two is, is becoming a bit clearer. Um, there is an issue and tension around the business model for for GPs particularly. Um, you know, it's all right to say all that activity is coming your way, but they'll say, well, where's the money? Uh, on what basis? And, you know, how do we know that will make us viable in the longer term? And I think there is still tension and nervousness around that. And it was interesting. I was talking to our, um, P, the RICP lead today and just saying that, you know, that, that there's a, a, a niggling concern that if we take our eye off the ball, in terms of working with the GP so that they have a viable offer in terms of contract, then we could lose the whole lot. Yeah. And do you think that is a, a likely threat to the to the future of general practice? Yeah. Yeah, yeah I do. I mean, I, I think that, um, I mean, talking to, to the general practitioners at local level who are quite, you know, they're, they're well organized, um, but I think there is a genuine fear that their world is often ignored and not understood as the biggest system developments start to take place. So mm. There's always a need not to forget that group. And I think that group is dependent on having very, very strong clinical leaders at its heart whose focus is about designing the right pathways of care. So we have, yeah. I would say, you know, the PCM leads are pretty strong and one or two of them are very strong within the wider network. And it's really important. So if I look at my role, my role within that patch has been to keep that dialogue going with those PCN leaders um, and to make sure they don't feel excluded. Mm. Do, do you see PCNs as becoming, so over the last year or, or two, um, since PCNs emerged, we've seen more and more practice mergers more and more single practice PCNs. Do you see that as a direction of travel that, that PCNs and uh, practices will start to happen? Uh, I think it'll it'll vary enormously from from place to place, depending on its culture, its history, uh, depending on the level of investment they've been used to. Uh, it, 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 so in some areas, yes. In some areas, no. I think you know that, that. I don't think there's one size fits all for it, really. Yeah. Okay. And and we've talked there about the threats to primary care in terms of hospital trusts. Uh, one of the one of the uh, elements of the white paper is more control for the Secretary of State over over foundation trusts and the model of integration itself. And we talked about things moving out of hospital. There's a perception that maybe actually there's more of a threat to hospitals and primary care in, in some of the integration agenda. Is that something that you're yeah, I guess so. I mean, I guess so. I mean, I think there's a real irony, irony to it, isn't it? I mean, having personally taken an organisation through the FT uh, authorisation criteria, told you shouldn't be anywhere near the Secretary of State and having an independent regulator, for them to suddenly see that switch 180 degrees in the other direction. I think somewhere the truth will lie in between. Um, if, if big acute providers and others are continuing to soak up the lion's share of, of, of health spend, then I think there will be a real tension and a chance for more um, central control because that model is not sustainable. And I think where, where it can be demonstrated that there's greater integration and more proportionate investment in acute provision, then I think that the, 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 the eagle of the state will circle less around those patches that it will where that's not happening. Mm. So you're not seeing much intervention unless there's sort of exceptional circumstances otherwise. No, I mean if you've got, you know, if you've got a failing platform of hospitals, you'll get you will get intervention. There's no doubt about it. But I mean my experience is, is that it, it hasn't thus far been heavy handed. It tends to be more brokered. Um, and I think always with a view of in, in experience, because with another hat on, I'm a non-exec at, a, at, a, at one of the acute providers in GM, and I, I think one thing we've never veered from is, is that, that the role of acute hospitals within local populations have to, have to move between a place from being a place where people go to, to being a genuine community anchor and asset within that local community. 
So how do you think trusts will have to adapt then over the next few years? Um, if their resilience has been born out of vulnerability so that they've managed to survive in spite of the fact that they might not be sustainable or they're leaping from one unsteady rock in the river to the next, I think they've got to kind of give up that idea, that notion of their existence being viable. And I think increasingly you've got to think, well, look five years ahead. So if we use the example of, of one of the acute providers within the local patch where I'm working at the moment, is they're seeing that. They're seeing five years' time, five to ten years' time. That is not a viable offer to a local population. So they, they have reversed their strategy in a way, is to say we don't need to keep moving as we are. We need to turn ourselves into another entity. And where I think that's going to need the support of the ICSs, and arguably from NHSIE, is if there looks to be radical reform on how services are provided and organisations have to change, they may well have to act as brokers. So, mm. you know, if, if an organisation can't exist in its current form, well, identify the function that's needed for it, and then you can identify the form that follows. And I think if the, if the conversations are, are right in place, then there is a fighting shot that you'll get the right type of configuration. Yeah, okay. it's, pretty wish, it's, it's pretty hopeful, but where else can you go with a conversation like that? Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, you, it needs to, it needs you to can't sustain what you've got. You can't, you know. So, to me, that sounds like there'll be a, a, a smaller number of super trusts or, or, or a smaller number of large trusts, and then the, the smaller trusts, as they are at the moment, will become community-based <laughs> assets or of some sort where they're, yeah, they're, or, they're doing a small or, amount. Or they could, you know, they could belong, those ones that had evolved into place for lots of different reasons could, could be part of an alliance, for example, an acute alliance, as, as is the case in parts of GM. Mm. Um, you know, it's not one size fits all. So, I mean, if you look at, use that example, is, is that if you need, to recruit a workforce, you need to train a workforce, you need to have back office function, you need to invest in capital, in you know, in, in complex equipment, particularly in acute services, then the likelihood is you will need some kind of overseeing alliance or, or organization or whatever it is to see that, but that doesn't stop you devolving into place. Yeah, yeah. So I think the same would apply, for example, to mental health providers. I had this conversation the other week where I was saying, well, could, could you not just devolve all of the um, all, all of the mental health provision into into ICP level uh, development. So, well, yeah, but how would you how would you administer just an example? How would you administer the Mental Health Act if you did that? Hmm. How would you provide specialist training to those practitioners? It's kind of you know that it's not just about that. I think place may well be served by organisations, but those organisations may well have umbrellas that are the hmm. provider collaboratives but nonetheless don't detract from place. Yeah, and it sounds to me like there's a huge opportunity in there for sort of developing communities of practice that are yeah, definitely. You know, possibly, yeah. you know, outside of the structural bit, it's those practitioners in, in various geographies who are supporting yeah. each other and working together. Yeah. We, we've talked about the, the, the NHS side of, of, of the systems there. How are local authorities working with this shift to integration? Um, I think with a degree of acceptance um, would would be my observation at the moment. I think that they are accepting that this is a, a move that is not going to be reversed. Um, I think after 11 years of austerity uh, under the former coalition and in this current government, conservative government, I think there's a degree of scepticism that this might be just a problem that's pushed their way which is more a manifestation of a shrinking welfare state. Um, in, in so, so there's a there's a fair degree of healthy scepticism um, about what's going on, but th that's counterbalanced by I think a sense of real opportunity about how this could really bring systems together, which serve population need in a better way. Mm. So, for example, within within the local patch I'm working in, our place lead is the chief executive of the council. That, that that really is a I suppose a a statement of intent almost as to there is yeah. a different way to do this. Yeah, and I think with that with that being seen as 
by health colleagues as overwhelmingly positive, I think it's a good statement as well. It doesn't mean that people aren't nervous and it doesn't mean that people aren't skeptical, but the idea that people are thinking, yeah, there might be something in this. Mm. So do, is it that local authorities kind of see the opportunity to use other resources to further the public health yeah, I think agenda. they do. I mean, the discussions, for example, we've, we've had in the Health and Wellbeing Board have all been around the broader determinants. Mm. So the, the idea that you cannot divorce health and social care from the broader determinants is not, is not always a discussion that's taken place. Mm. And I think that thinking about future planning needs, I mean, you know, sustainability being at the heart of them, and I used an example about, uh, you know, rebuild a hospital with a carbon neutral footprint that links to the housing regeneration, employment and social regeneration in an area that is more in need than other areas in quite an affluent patch is, is a really healthy way of seeing health working with the council in a different way. Are there other ways in which the NHS might be driven to, to kind of support that levelling up, that ability to offer greater access or a more, more equitable access? Um, you're making me think now. <laughs> um, I guess, I mean, I, I guess there are. I mean, it, it kind of, it, it does beg the question again about what, what is the nature of, of organisations? What's the nature of an NHS organisation? So the ability to build relationships with other elements in local communities. I'm thinking commercial links, you know, thinking, you know, links, for example, to, you know, not only solely to do with you know commercial links within directly within health and care but more broadly i mean i think there's opportunities there to really think that through um with another hat on um working with the local university here um discussions about um building a new health campus for um health and human sciences but then linking that to um to, to greater cross-agency activity in business and local business growth is something that I think that all health communities need to start thinking about a bit more actively. Yeah, so so does that mean all, all parts of the local authority are coming to the table to talk about these things? So transport yeah, yeah, and education? Yeah, it's, it's not boxed off, no, not at all, it's not boxed off. So you're looking at, you know, typically if you're looking within councils is the place and people functions are increasingly coming together mm. that it's not being viewed as one's boxed off and that's who deals with health it's much more about we need to bring them together yeah so in in terms of pure health delivery i suppose as it's been historically for uh, you know in in our webinars we've we've talked about social prescribing and prevention yeah. and, and all of those things before i guess you're you're saying if i'm not mis misquoting you that that's really the way things are going is a hot agenda. It, it's not just about episodic care of things. It's about how do we stop people even coming to health services in the first place? Yeah, and that's the broader determinant. So I mean, if you know, if you if you've got somebody who's been a, a repeat returner to services because their lifestyle's poor, and their lifestyle's poor because they can't access employment, or they're in poor housing, or they haven't got a social network, or they haven't got any kind of any kind of um, activity that, that helps them stay healthy and it, it's not necessarily has to be offered by the state but at least you're aware of where those assets are yeah increasingly you've got to move to that model yeah so do you expect places to hold budgets uh at the moment yes yes through through what I, usually you I mean where you know again again at local level i'm working is through their icp structure that's where the discussion is taking place. So their integrated care partnership would be seen as an integrated commissioning and provider function. So yes. Yeah. Okay. And and what what might what might fall within that budget? Is that, is that still <laughs> to be determined? So, so what's in what's out? I think goes back to the kind of earned autonomy model. Hmm. So that if if the vision and the architecture for delivery is well understood. And the ICS is confident that those those that commissioning function can be placed safely at local place level, then it would follow. 
if they're not, then I don't think that will happen. I think that's the kind of, I think that's the that's the fallback position as things would move further up into ICS level. Yeah. Okay. So uh, a, a lot of our audience are, um, you know, supplying the NHS at the moment, uh, medicines, devices, technologies. Mm-hmm. And and there's this this big question for everyone at the moment of of who's going to hold the budget around our around specific areas. Um, ICS is obviously a, a an area that might happen. PCNs already hold you know certain budgetary responsibilities in certain areas. How going forward might these things be determined? Will will it just be a case of we'll start at ICS and then once the bit places are in place we'll start to feed a bit down to that level and then it if they're using PCNs in certain ways, then they'll delegate it that way? Or is it going to be just a, a bit more of a Wild West situation? I think I think realistically, I think it, it will be more driven down through the ICS so that, that once they are aware of how robust arrangements are, um, both in terms of delivery and decision-making and governance within place, then there's more likely for that that process of subsidiarity and decision making to move down. One of the things that I think that we can't we shouldn't forget is councils have been used far more than the NHS has for procurement. You know, if you looked at you know value for money exercises that were around 20 years ago, and that thing around councils being used to to dealing with those issues, we haven't had that in health. Yeah. Okay. So I'm I'm picking up that the bit around budgets is is it'll be kind of thought through as to who is the best person or the best organisation to use that. So you wouldn't be given a budget at place level if you couldn't influence the impact on that or the or the, or the spend on it. Would that be fair? No, I think that's right. I do think that's reasonable, and I think for a lot of the people who you're working with, as a company, I mean, they they would want some assurance that that. You know, there's some, there's a robust, <coughs> excuse me, there's a, there's a robustness to the way those decisions are being made. Mm. And I think, but if you kept it up at a certain level, there is a danger that the same arrangements will always just roll over incrementally, yeah. rather than actually thinking, well, actually, here's a real opportunity to do something quite different. That there might be a different market offer from suppliers because actually the model's changing. So. You know, using the example of digitization, the you know the the opportunity for digitization in most places is huge. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. And therefore, the, therefore, the market potential is huge. Yeah. So, if if we took an example, let's say oncology cancer services, <coughs> um, you know, it, it's one that is highly complex in in you know people with cancer have a, a huge breadth of needs. Some of that is medicine, some of it is mm-hmm. in the community and, and lots in between. Would it be simplistic to say oncology budgets would either sit at ICS place or it, it wouldn't be PCN, but for the, for the purpose of this illustration, PCN, or is it what are the needs of all of these people and how are those little bits split up? So where where does community transport sit? Where does medicine sit? And uh, I think that's right. And I think increasingly it's going to be, you know, and we already have the cancer networks, do we not? And I think increasingly it's going to be, it's going to be where where along the pathway do you have those decision points where you mm-hmm. can devolve and where you can't? But increasingly it's understanding against population need and the number and trends of those people accessing them. That's where you begin to build in those transition points. So if I give it again, giving an example of oncology services, the Christie Hospital in Manchester currently provides an oncology service into Macclesfield on the site of East Cheshire Trust's main facility. Um, mm. Now, that's more of a specialist element in nature, but it starts to beg the question in the future, who would co- who would commission that from the Christie? Yeah. Is that a, G, a GM commission service? Where is, it, where is it coming from? But I think the opportunity to develop the dialogue around it in a different way is really, really quite healthy. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's exactly those sorts of things that, that we've been wrestling with and no doubt our audience have as, as well. Of, yeah, of, yeah. Particularly things like specialist services. And we've talked about, might there be a return to postcode prescribing if there's more control delegated locally? Yeah. Do you perceive tensions between kind of national and local 
decision making. Yeah, undoubtedly. Yeah, undoubtedly. I mean, and, and you know, we, you know, at different times, we've all experienced that in different ways where you think collectively within a local level, you may well have found a solution. And that might include private sector provision as well, only to be met with a refusal is this doesn't fit with the policy direction. Mm. And yet, you know that that problem will continue to persist for at least five to ten years. And that five to ten years is lost in the system. So again, again, a practical example of that. Um, in the former trust, there was a, a paucity of level four um, child and adolescent mental health provision uh, right across the Yorkshire area. And there was a proposal uh, from a, a private provider that they could provide the capital to develop a new facility, but would require us to provide the specialist intervention into that facility. We could provide a, a reasonable site that had a lot of local political support to redevelop. When we took it further up the chain, we were told, no, that doesn't fit with the policy directive. Mm. So I'm using that as a practical example. And yet we knew, and it is still the case now, that five years later, that, that level of poor provision still exists within within Yorkshire mm. so yeah so so do you think at a place level then you and, and colleagues in similar roles to you will be in any kind of different position in terms of the the, the, the power the accountability the responsibility that you have to be able to make decisions like that in a different way or, or are you still going to well, be hamstrung well it, it kind of feels that if if place can find the way of of working out what real population opportunities exist and how it could be met differently. If that voice, particularly the voice of health and the local council coming together to develop a compelling evidence-based argument, it's going to be harder for people to say, no, you can't, particularly if it's costed. And, and what else will place need to, to make it an effective part of the system? I think, I mean, I, I think, again, some of the work we've been doing, it even preempted the white paper, we've been looking at, you know, trying to, trying to promote the triple aim uh, approach. So, you know, do we understand what our population health needs and how we want to change the patterns of addressing those needs, particularly reducing health inequality? Do we really understand what people's experience of care is and does it meet their requirements? And how do we reduce cost per capita? And I think it's the third element about understanding what your underlying position is, and COVID hasn't particularly helped with that, I have to say, that we know what the number is and we know what the priorities are that we're having to tackle financially by developing more responsive services that meet people's needs and have an impact at population level. And I think that's an, that's an area where it's going to have to be an awful lot of work done. Mm in terms of costing the offer and um, what can you do around that at the moment do you have any resource to do those sorts of things or is it um <coughs> no i think it'd be fair i mean there are there are people who are experienced and are, and are providing dedicated work to it and i think that's at place level that's at ics level and that's our nhsie level so i think there's there's a number of areas where that work is being undertaken um but it's very difficult because it's often so reliant on central policy guidance, particularly treasury and allocation issues, that, that you're kind of working and always waiting in anticipation of what's going to come down the line. Yeah, absolutely. But towards ever thus, towards ever thus. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So thinking about the whole project of reorganisation and, and integration, um, do you think the NHS is in a position at the moment when it can reorganize itself with, with the ongoing pandemic the depleted workforce everything else that's happening at the moment um i think the answer is yes and, and i say yes and it sounds in a surprised way i've been i mean absolutely blown away by the um the level of resilience that people have shown over the past year if anything people are returning back to whatever the new normal or new reset will be which with what seems to be like a renewed sense of vigor 
that it, it, it's, it, it's, it seems strange, excuse me, <clears throat> that COVID in a way has washed away a lot of the old relationship difficulties because okay. people increasingly have had to come together. And it's left them with a feeling of, I think it's left them with a feeling of real opportunity for what could be done. Yeah, that that's really interesting because we we heard in you know in our webinars this time last year when it was the beginning of the pandemic or the first mm. couple of months and there was this real collaborative spirit, everyone working together, new relationships being formed, and then then we we sort of sensed that through the winter that tailed off. It got really difficult again, and and <coughs> a lot of that was becoming frayed. But it, it's interesting to to hear that that's coming back because you know on one hand we've got lots of people talking about uh, you know. The, the mental health burden within the NHS of, of COVID, as well as the physical burn, burden of people just being burnt out. So do you think this is enough of a, a driver for people to, to sort of go again? I think so. I mean, I think, I think the recognition, I mean, that is sort of a good point you make around mental health. I think the recognition that this has taken things out of people, I think, has, has, you know, that, that hasn't been lost on people at local level is people know that folks have had a torrid time um, and that they've been tested and that there has to be some reparation really. Um, but that is a recognized factor within, certainly within the systems I'm working in, that, that that has happened. I think there is something around the timing of these reforms, the formalize, the formalization of these reforms, which I think people have found very hard. So that just as they were coming out of handling you know, the first wave of the vaccines and all of the organisation and logistics that went with that to be told that you're not going to exist anymore in your current form as a commissioner, mm. I think didn't feel the greatest of timing. No, absolutely. Um, and in terms of what needs to be done, so there's all the exciting stuff about bringing services together, you know, the art of the possible, and let's think about, you know, doing things differently. There's then a whole administrative burden that goes with it as well. Do you yeah. think people might pick and choose the bits that they want to do and that, that there's kind of lots of innovative thinking and great sort of collaboration going on, but then actually the, the work behind the scenes is forgotten, or do you think that actually it will be taken on together? I think it'll be varied. I think it'll be varied. And you can see that. I can see that people wanting to work on what they want to work on. Um, but I think a lot of that will be dependent on the nature and the quality of leadership at local level. Mm. Um, now, you know, you're beginning to see that is, is that it's, a, it's, it's almost a different form of leadership, if I'm, if I'm being honest, is, is that People, people increasingly, in, in, in my experience, are starting to get the idea of the leader's role as being host, not hero. Mm. So that they are hosting a system that they understand. And that increasingly this issue about le you know, leading to learn rather than learning to lead. Mm. So normally we say, well, you just need to be you know, given this. this it's actually people are working out how you learn together how to lead differently. And I think that back to what you're saying about who will be playing the right roles within that will be dependent on the model of leadership, I think. Yeah. And, and where you get that new kind of leadership in place, does that, can you sense that that filters down into the rest of the system? Completely. Completely. Yeah. I, 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 was, um, I was facilitating workshop last week, which was basically using for place. Um, a, a soft systems methodology where we started by just asking what is our individual understanding of the problems that we're facing here the problems that you and I have been talking about in the webinar today and giving different perspectives on it and then asking people if they can then come to a not necessarily a consensus but a common understanding of where we have common ground and where we have differences and, and where we might work through those differences to accommodate them in a politically and culturally feasible way. And that went down really well. And it went down really well because a lot of leaders in that system, whether they be GP leaders, because there were GP leaders in it, whether it be acute trust leaders, whether it be mental health leaders, they were making offers which seemed to resonate with the people around that table. Um, and I think increasingly it's that kind of dialogue I mean, there's all the trite words like collaboration and 
you know, co-production and the rest of it. But it's a willingness to understand someone else's worldview and try and accommodate that so that you can get better outcomes. And I think it's it's beginning it's beginning to take us in a slightly different direction. Would those same people have had that conversation a year ago? Not as readily as they do now. Hmm. And I, if you ask me why, there could be hundreds of reasons why. I don't know, COVID, um, some new people appointed, just the climate changing, just the feeling that the people are looking for something else. I mean, you know, we could spend spend a week on trying to work out why that's the case. Yeah. But if it is beginning to happen, then it's really important that we capitalise on it, isn't it? Yeah, and I suppose, you know, you, you, you've said several times that things will be different in different places. And I suppose those factors yeah. will, will be a whole spectrum in yeah. different places, won't they? And, um, you know, in some respects, it doesn't matter why it's happening, but the fact that it is, is, is the positive thing. Yeah, and that's why it's important that you don't end up with a, with a kind of one-size-fits-all um, mm. methodology. And, and, you know, the innovation's a cracking example for that, is why can't people scale, adopt and diffuse innovation? At, you know, why can't they do it? Well, because places and people vary. Mm. I was just going to ask, do you look to other places to see pockets yeah, of Yeah, all the time, all the time, all the time, yeah. And I think, I just, again, very, very practical example, our PCNs were looking at the Swedish methodology that they'd seen in the Young Shipping system, so that they're, they're looking at improvement science uh, underpinning the work that they do so that they're not they're not just inventing it they're looking to other areas which is great isn't it you know yeah. St Helens is recognized as an exemplar within the local area where I'm working and people are looking over the border in St Helens and trying to glean as much as they can from how they've adopted an approach to it that seems to be working Bromley by Bow is another community that I think has attracted a lot of clinicians attentions particularly in in primary care thinking hmm, something could be done differently here and I think using that network of understanding and, and information is really key. Yeah absolutely so what what support do places need to, to develop I mean you, you either use yours as an example or, or things you've seen elsewhere? Um, I think generally I think this this idea of, of enabling people to work in the systems so the idea of having rather than as mentioned before organizational development systems development so how do you how do you adopt leadership and management techniques to help you shape your understanding of what's going on within a system? Um, so that feels one. I think the second one is there's something around governance and having some expertise about how you develop governance. I think there's something around the financial framing of it, which is hellishly complex, and that's going to need some support. And I think there's something around communication and engagement that communicating and engaging in a way that is fit for place rather than is fit for organization yeah absolutely so they'll be the main four really yeah okay fantastic i'm conscious we, we've got a couple of minutes left and and i wish we had a couple of hours left but um the final question that we, we always end on for the benefit of our audience in terms of things that you're doing locally and, and places are doing do you think there's a role for industry to play in, in supporting development yeah, definitely, definitely. I think that that too often. I mean, I go back to that example about about a new a new hospital, um, you know, new diagnostics, carbon neutral footprint. You know that that idea of then integrating into the community. Well, well, there are opportunities for investment in better equipment, in better construction facilities. You know, in, in terms of actually better housing, when you're getting into that, then you're moving into the more specific med tech issues. So you're getting into better digital um, facilities within primary care and in people's homes and neighborhoods. You know, the, the list's endless if we can begin to think because it is such a big supply chain and so many opportunities to do things differently and more efficiently. It does, it really does feel a real opportunity. And, and would your colleagues locally be be keen to have conversations with with companies who were thinking of things differently, trying to come up with new perspectives? I, I think they would be. Yeah, I think they would be. I mean, you you only know what you see is available, don't you? Mm. So, I mean, if you've never seen something that could be done differently, 
it's very difficult. I mean, I, I remember within my former trust in in the Barnsley area, we we were heavily digitized in our community services. And it was only when we saw how that could work that you begin to see the merit of the investment in that type of technology. Hmm. Yeah, absolutely. You know, we've always looked at chronic heart failure in this way. And the only way you can look after it is to have teams of, of community nurses going into people's homes all the time. No, you don't. You put the hub in the home and put them in a call centre. And they only yeah. need to come out when they need to come out. Yeah, absolutely. I'm, I'm afraid we're going to have to end it there, Stephen. So uh, thank you very much for, for joining me this afternoon. That's been a fantastic yeah. of places. Um, thanks for everyone at home and in your offices, wherever you might be, for, for tuning in. Uh, stay in touch with us via our NHS Whispers uh, LinkedIn page. Drop us an email at nhsinsights at mtechaccess.co.uk if you want to get in touch directly. Um, we'll be back next month. We'll be looking at a patient perspective with Steph Duse, who's the chief executive of St. Oswald, Oswald's Hospice uh, in Newcastle, looking at equality of access, personalised medicine, population health, all of the, the, the emerging themes that are going to be central to, to the new health and social care system. So thanks again, Stephen. And thanks, we'll see you next month. Thank you for listening to this podcast. Please do subscribe for future episodes. If you'd like to find out more about our work with the NHS or how we can support your market access strategy, please email info at mtechaccess.co.uk.